When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Expose yourself. Show them what you're all about. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Expose Dragged Out. You know, it's the podcast where I, Joseph Shepard, interview some of the queens who were on a little franchise called RuPaul's Drag Race. And I just want to say thank you guys so much for listening this past year. Thank you for supporting, for all the comments, for all the love, and really just making these interviews so special to me, but also for you guys as well. Today, I'm doing something a little bit different. I am so nervous, but I'm gonna, gonna, gonna go through. And <laughs> that is talking about myself. For the past few years, I have been interviewing drag queens and telling their stories. But I feel like my story is something that hasn't been told. And I feel like, hey, maybe you guys would like to be a little bit more personal with uh, Joseph Shepard. So um, that's what I'm gonna do today. I asked you guys for your questions over the internet via YouTube and via Instagram, and we're going to get into it. So some of it may be a little choppy, just depending on, you know, where I ask the questions, where I answer the questions, and other part will be more of a story. I am doing this solo, so nobody's asking me the questions, but let's get to it. Lisa Stone said, your classic question, what was little Joseph Shepard like? Uh... (laughs) Little Joseph Shepard was born and raised in Tennessee. He was born in 1991. I was born in Memphis to my mother and my father, as you would be. And I was energetic. I was creative. I always wanted to be the center of attention in some way predominantly when it came to cameras. Uh, (laughs) My brother's five years younger than me. And when my brother was born, my mom wanted to like record so many videos of him as a child. And I got so mad because I just wanted to be in the middle. I wanted the video on me. I did not care about my brother. I was an angry child when my brother was born. I literally, my mom was sitting on her bed and she was pregnant with my brother. And I literally, I remember going over to her stomach, patting her stomach and calling, (laughs) calling my brother a demon baby. That did not go well, too well with my mom. But in regards to Everything else, yeah. I I grew up in Tennessee. My mom's side of the family was from Humboldt, Tennessee, which is very country. My grandfather had a farm with a lake. He grew vegetables and all of that. So all of our vegetables and food predominantly came from my grandfather. 
But the one thing that was very, very difficult for me was that I grew up Southern Baptist. So church every Sunday, youth group on Wednesdays sometimes. And no matter what you did, nothing ever seemed like good enough. And I'm referring to my mom's side of the family. And I think that that was very difficult for me as a human being, where if I excelled in school or something, it was frowned upon on by my mom's side of the family because we lived in the city. We got away from the country and there was a different standard to be held. Like the people in the country could get a, you know, my cousins and stuff could get a job at a local fast food chain or something and they would get all the praise in the world. But, you know, if we got into college or something, nobody even better than I. So there was this feeling of always being inferior to my family. And I never necessarily thought about that more until recently and as I've grown up. And that's kind of caused a big divide between myself and my mom's side of the family. Because I guess I've never felt supported in that way. But yeah, so I was fun. I was energetic. I was cheery. I was... I was a cool kid, I guess you would say. Maybe. No, I actually wasn't. (laughs) And when middle school hit, I did gain a lot of weight. I ended up being over 200 pounds um, at the start of high school. And I was made fun of for it quite a bit for being overweight. People would make fun of me and tell me that I was gay because I was in theater. I didn't know that I was gay yet. I hadn't come into my own. I, you know, would just get so affected and so mad by people saying this because in religion and in Southern Baptist Christianity, you are viewed as going to hell if you are gay and you have this negative, negative, negative connotation on it. And I remember I was 13 and I was in the car with my mother and we were coming back home from school and I just had this little inkling in me. I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask. So I asked my mom, what would you do if I was gay? And my mother responded, you're not going to be gay. You're never going to be gay. Don't ever say that. Don't say it. Don't say it into the world. And I didn't. And I stopped saying that and I never really questioned and, you know, wanted to explore that side or, you know, the feelings and the urges that I had when I was made fun of for all of those years for, you know, being overweight and being more flamboyant and gay. I took one summer between my sophomore year and my junior year of high school. And I lost a total of like 60, 70 pounds within three or four months. I wasn't eating anything. My mom thought that I was on drugs. She took me to the doctor. She was trying to convince the doctor that I was on drugs. I never taken a drug in my life. I just wasn't eating. And I lost a lot of weight. And I then, because I had curly hair and was made fun of for my curly hair, I started to straighten my hair and get it uh, relaxed permanently and go and I would have scabs on my head from getting my hair done. And it was like awful, but I just wanted to have this image. I wanted to be accepted. I got rid of my glasses. I then ended up getting blue contacts. Why in the world would I get blue contacts? It doesn't even like fit me right. But I wanted to be an image of what people would accept because I didn't necessarily know what acceptance was. 
So during all of that, of course, you know, there's the internet and there is porn going around. And I found myself, you know, watching solo videos of guys or, you know, going to the Target and going to the underwear aisle and looking at the bulges in the underwear aisle and just trying to convince myself, hey, that's okay, you know, I'm just checking out the the packages. I'm just checking out what's going on here. This is all normal, but <laughs> you try to convince yourself that you're straight, but you know, obviously you're not. So yeah, that was me growing up. And I think that I loved being a child. I loved, you know, relating to certain things, but I also was shy. I was very shy when it came down to making friends or being in social situations or, you know, trying for all of that. I collected autographs as a child. I wrote to celebrities all the time. And it wouldn't even matter if I knew who the celebrity was. I just wanted an autograph in the mail and I would write letters. I had a website that I would go to, stararchive.com, I believe it was. And I would end up sending these letters, getting autographs back. And that was a heyday. I loved it so much. I would collect pencils. I loved collecting pencils and pens. I also was extremely OCD. I would have a routine every night before I went to bed where I would wipe off my feet two or three times. I would make sure the doorknob was shut and I would click it back eight times. I would go to the restroom. I would have to hit the toilet knob a certain amount of times, brush my teeth a certain amount of ways on each side. I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I just thought that, hey, that's what normal is. But, you know, growing up, you kind of figure out that that's not what normal is. So, yeah, let's get into another question. I would like to know, this is from Jose, I would like to know more about your religious upbringing and how is your relationship with your relatives after coming out? Oof, I did not come out of the closet until I was a junior in college. I went to college in Atlanta, Georgia State University. I went for broadcast journalism because even though I wanted to be an actor in some shape, form, or way, I knew that my true heart was entertainment and pop culture. And I wanted to be the next Ryan Seacrest. So I went to school at Georgia State. I created my own entertainment news show that I hosted. I wrote, I edited, um, and it was great and it was wonderful and I loved it. But coming out, I didn't come into my own until I was in an acting class with this guy named Matt. And I wore tank tops all the time. I still wear tank tops all the time. I'm addicted to tank tops. And... Matt also wore tank tops, and I was like, oh my goodness, this guy's wearing tank tops, he's got some nice arms, ooh, like, maybe we can be friends because we're in the tank top gang. And <laughs> we became friends, Matt was gay, Matt made that very apparent, I, you know, played the the innocent, I'm straight, eventually I started to get feelings for Matt, and I changed my sexuality in that moment to bisexual because I still didn't believe that it was okay to be gay. And Matt and I had like a very short string of, I guess you would say, a relationship. And that was my first male-to-male kiss. I was 20, 21 at the time. That was my first sexual experience ever. I was a virgin up until I was 20, 21, which is a very hard thing to say when, you know, you're made fun of constantly for things like that when you get older. All I got to say to you guys is like, when you have sex, you have sex. There's no big rush for it. Don't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a virgin at this age or that age. Who gives a fuck? Like, we care too much about what society thinks to where we can't even like be our own selves. And I think that that fucking sucks. So yeah, I felt this urge and I was like, I 
think I may be gay now. And after Matt, I ended up meeting somebody on Twitter. I slid into their DMs and they lived in New York. I was in Atlanta. And this was like the first official relationship that I'd ever had. And I went home for Christmas that year. And when I went home for Christmas, my parents proceeded to tell me that they were getting a divorce. My dad told me that. And I responded to my dad, well, I'm gay. And I was like, if you're going to tell me some bad news, I'm going to tell you some news that you guys are probably going to view as bad. And I said it. I did not tell my mom. My mom is very religious. My mom was very adamant about things. My mom, um, very judgmental of being gay or people being gay. And I didn't want to tell her. So after Christmas, I flew to New York to visit this person that I had been talking to on Twitter for months. And we met for the first time. I had a beautiful weekend. It was my, you know, first gay relationship. And I ended up going back home to Atlanta for school. And I got off the plane and I had literally probably about 20 to 30 text messages, 10 to 15 missed calls. And they were all from my mom. And my dad proceeded to get a hold of me somehow, some way. And he was like, hey, giving you a heads up, your mom knows. Be ready. So I, as an individual, was scared as hell. I did not want to talk to my mom about myself being gay. I thought that I could just, you know, never tell her. <laughs> well, my mom is a very good spy. And she saw on my Instagram that I was taking pictures with a guy. And so she knew from there. So that was hard. And she called me and I talked to her on the phone. She told me I was going to hell. She told me that that wasn't the lifestyle that I should choose and that God would not be happy with me. She told me that I had changed as a human being and as a person. I wasn't the same child that I was growing up. I heard everything. I cried my eyes out. I bawled. I didn't understand how somebody who could love me unconditionally could then turn their back on me for my sexual orientation. I've never said this story out loud in public because I was always afraid of how my mom would react if she heard it. But I believe we all need to be open books. And I believe that my experience may relate to your experience. And it's okay. Like, we as human beings, and especially in our LGBTQIA plus culture, we go through a lot of shit. And we don't talk about it. We keep it on the inside because... We're afraid of what somebody else will think. At the end of the day, who gives two fucks what other people think? Like, be yourself, be you. You only have one life to live that we know of. You don't know what's going to happen once you pass. So stop being afraid of what other people are going to react about your sexuality or your femininity or your masculinity because at the end of the day, that is who you are. Your untapped potential. Don't try to like hide something for somebody else. So... Yeah, my mom figured out and I didn't talk to her for about a year and a half, two years. It was a very, very difficult time. I Things happened college-wise and payments and things ended up going through and not going through. And I basically ended up getting, you know, multiple jobs. And yeah, it was a very, very difficult time, especially when you're coming out and coming into your own and the people that love you the most were not fully accepting. Uh, yeah, so that was a lot and that was a lot of that. So the next one is what were your previous jobs? Well, going into that after college, my last semester of college, I 
was still dating the person in New York. I really wanted to be around them. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be TV and film and production. And I would love to go to New York because that's where the person I was dating is. So I applied for every internship in the world. And I ended up getting an internship at Rachel Ray. And the Rachel Ray show, I don't remember what season it was. I believe it was probably seven or eight. And I was excited. I was ecstatic. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm making it into the big league. I'm going to be interning unpaid. I'm going to be interning five days unpaid. And yeah, unpaid internship for college credit, working five days a week, nine to 10 hours a day, running throughout the streets of New York City, returning clothes for weight loss people who did makeovers on the show, maternity clothes. Oh my gosh. The crazy part about television (laughs) you may not know is that these makeovers and everything, let's say that they're like, oh my gosh, this is Barbara. We're going to give her a makeover. Nobody knows Barbara's size technically. So you're responsible for going to multiple stores buying multiple clothing. I'm not a fashion person. I have no idea what is going to look good on somebody who lost some weight. And I was responsible for buying clothes and then taking like 20 to 30 outfits back to the studio. And then the producer would like go through, choose one outfit. And then I was responsible with taking 19 outfits back to the Macy's department store and telling them, Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't use these at all. Um, they, you know, I am totally, these are totally mine. And I, they were too big for me. It was so awkward. It was so awful. The most embarrassment that I had, me being socially awkward, was awful. But that was my first gig in television working in some shape, form, or way, and that was in Daytime Talk. We are going to take a little break, and once we're back from this break, let's get into some more stuff. Hey, hey, hey! And we are back, and it's time to learn more about Joseph Shepard. I'm exposing myself, talking to you guys, answering the questions that you guys asked me. You guys actually asked me a lot of questions. I'm actually surprised with that, but I'm actually happy about it too. I, When I started the series of Exposed, I never expected the love and the admiration and the comments that you guys have, the support that you guys have given me, and just seeing like these comments, it makes me so happy. So my previous job, as we were talking about, I interned at Rachel Ray. I got in trouble at Rachel Ray. (laughs) Being on the spectrum, which we are going to get into a little bit later, sometimes I don't pick up on cues. I don't pick up on social cues. Uh, A lot of times I don't pick up on social cues. I don't, I can't technically read people's emotions and stuff. And it's very difficult for me. And I was very into Vine. Vine was very popular. If you don't know what Vine was, it was like the early days of TikTok. 15-second videos. I believe it started as eight seconds or seven seconds at first. And it was just comedy gold. So at Rachel Ray, we got these packages from fans, you know. They would send Rachel things. But the intern's job... Sorry, Rachel never got your mail, guys. The intern's job was opening the packages, seeing what was inside. And if it was good, we would have to pass it to a producer. And the producer would deem if it's worthy of being given to Rachel. 
probably about 1% went to Rachel. The 99 other percent went to the garbage. Yes, it did. Sorry, people. So I one day opened this package and it was these jars like honey bear like you know honey has is like in the little bear little plastic honey bear jars and this person had painted them and made them coin banks and they were like this is a great diy you and your kids can do it at home you make little coin banks out of you know the honey jars and i was like oh my gosh, this is hilarious. They were all painted different colors and they all had like different little hats on. I thought it was hilarious. So for some odd reason, I wanted to make a vine where these honey bear jar things kept like popping up like in horror movies trying to like kill people. I don't know why, but I decided to enlist my friend, Chelsea. I was like, hey, Chelsea, let's go and shoot this video. So we went into the woman's restroom. Yes, the woman's restroom. And I had her pretend like she was sitting on the toilet and this honey bear was going to like pop over and like scare her for this vine. And we were doing that. And all of a sudden, the executive producer of the show walks into the bathroom and she sees a guy and a girl and a video camera or a phone or whatever you want to call it recording. So I got in a lot of trouble for that. I literally got chewed out. I was told that that was inappropriate. I should not be doing that. And I was literally felt like I had lost any hope or dreams that I had in the entertainment world because of a fucking honey bear jar. And I took it bad. I cried. I cried in the back stairway. I was so sad. I felt like I screwed it up. And it felt that way for a good year after the internship, because after the internship, the best people ended up getting a job if they felt that you were worthy. And of course, because of that, I did not get a job. And I really felt really, really low. But I had made some good gay colleagues who helped me. And after that, I ended up getting on a TV or pilot called Search. And that was a daytime talk show like Mari. And then... I landed because of my lovely, lovely, lovely colleague, Joe Mazaki. I landed a job at The View. And this was Barbara's last year. And it was pretty phenomenal. I got to work with Jenny McCarthy, Whoopi Goldberg, Barbara uh, Walters, and Sherry Shepard. And Barbara was always an inspiration for me when I was younger. I loved watching 2020. I loved watching her interviews with celebrities and just seeing how her as a journalist worked. She was, you know, at the heyday when she came out, she was one of the first females who like really just did interviews and did them so well. And I was inspired. After The View, I felt like New York was not for me. I ended up in a breakup, went back to Atlanta for a little bit. And then I went to California where I worked on multiple other daytime talk shows, reality shows and producing. And yeah, so, how did I get started in the drag world? Well, I got started in the drag world basically when I was in college. I have been interviewing local musicians that came through Atlanta, and I wanted to end up talking to them, telling their story, seeing what was up, you know, like put them on YouTube. And I interviewed g Easy when he first was starting up, I was addicted to g Easy. If I could have been in g Easy's pants, I would have been in g Easy's pants back then. Um, 
21 pilots before they were, you know, off and big. Um, I did, I'm blanking, but yeah, you get the picture. So <laughs> I interviewed them and I would look through every week and see who was coming through our local venues. And I saw that the season six girls were, um, of Drag Race were coming through and they were doing a tour. And I had never seen an episode of Drag Race in my life. It was season six. It was the end of season six. Bianca was just crowned. I decided to lie in my email that I sent out to interview these people. And I said, I love the show. It was great. I love it. I love it. I love it. Never seen it before in my life. Did not expect the PR person to respond. But the PR person responded and they said, yes, we would love for you to do an interview. I said, oh my goodness, I literally have 12 hours to, till I got to do this interview. I binged all of season six of Drag Race and I fell in love. I was like, oh my goodness, why have I never seen this before? This is so good. It was such a good season to start on. So I ended up interviewing Adore Delano. I, Adore was my first drag interview ever. I love her to death. I still talk to her to this day beautiful human being. And I decided to make things my own in that interview. I wanted to, she loved pizza. She loved saying party. So I like made sure that at the end I gave her a whole pizza from Domino's and candy and stuff. And I just wanted her to feel loved and accepted and that there was this interview person who actually gave a crap about, you know, drag culture and who drag queens were. And I guess that that kind of played off because after that, her PR person ended up being like, we love you, you know, and I got an article written about me and the wow report, which was a little thing on world of wonder. And I was extremely happy after that. I ended up moving. Like I told you, I was moved to LA and the PR person was like, we want you to go to the finale. We want you to interview these girls. So I started interviewing on season eight, season nine, 10, 11, the girls in the red carpet. And I put them on my YouTube and they would kind of get, you know, tens of thousands of views. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I loved it. I loved watching all the seasons of Drag Race. I finally felt heard as a human being. I felt like these queens are amazing. They're so talented. And I really just found this niche that I loved. And so after all that, I was working on a reality show called <laughs> Happily Ever After. It was a spinoff of The Bachelor. It was with two twins, Haley and Emily Ferguson. And my executive producer was like, we need to have a landlord on this show. And just so you know, a lot of reality TV is fake. You know, some things are storylines. So I was tasked with finding a drag queen to be their landlord because they wanted a comedic angle. My executive producer really, really, really wanted Jackie Beat. I really, 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 really wanted Willem. I just thought that Willem had something snarkiness, crassness, but also being able to improv on the fly and be able to go with things. And I kept pushing. And my executive producer was like, if you want this person so bad, bring them into the office and have them tell me why I should put them on the show. And I was like, fine, hit up Willem. I thought Willem was going to come in no drag whatsoever and just come into the office. No. Willem was dressed up in full drag, came on a hoverboard into the ABC offices and went straight into that interview with my executive producer. And my executive producer was like, I'm sold. Willem got it. 
So I think that they took it away from Jackie Beat and gave it to Willem. But uh, oop, oop. Anyway, that's where Willem and I kind of formed a friendship in our relationship. And behind the scenes of this show, I started learning more about Willem's story. He started talking more about season four, more about him, you know, as the drag queen that he is. And I was so fascinated with his story. I felt like he was so misrepresented in so many ways. I felt like the franchise was doing him an injustice. And I didn't necessarily understand the hate and everything coming back when somebody's telling their truth. I think that us as a society sometimes may believe that just because we like something, it's all great and dandy. But at the end of the day, there could be some tomfoolery that happens. And there was some tomfoolery that happened. And I wanted Willem to tell his tomfoolery story. <laughs> so we became friends after, you know. Um, and one day I was thinking to myself, you know, like I was like, what? I would love to tell their story. And stating my boyfriend, my current boyfriend at the time, been together for three years. A lot of you guys have asked if I am single. I am not single. I am in an amazing relationship with my boyfriend. Um, he's Argentinian and Italian. You guys asked that too. And... I was telling him about this. I was like, you know, I feel like I want to do interviews with queens and I want to do these things and tell their stories. And I was like, I just don't know if I should. And he pushed me and he pushed me quite a bit. And I ended up doing an interview with Willem. I, you know, fronted the money. I paid for an editor. We did it at Willem's place. Um, I paid for a camera person. And I just thought that it was going to be an okay interview. Didn't really know. And it only got like 10,000 views within the first week or so. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm not going to do this again. And then somehow, some way, I think the Reddit community found it. And it was a week later and I was in Las Vegas and the video skyrocketed to over 100,000 views. And I thought to myself, you know what? If that can happen there and people are interested in these queen stories, I want to tell more. So Alaska hit me up after Willems and she wanted to do it. And then the rest was like technically history. And I have been extremely happy with everything that I've put out. I've been extremely happy with the reception. And yeah. So who is your favorite queen to interview with? And who is your least favorite queen that you had to interview with? My favorite, I would probably have to say, I mean, there's quite a few. I loved um, Willem was, you know, of course, the one that brought it all around and started everything. And his story is so good. And he's such a good storyteller. Absolutely love talking with the Vixen because I believe that the Vixen was so underrepresented and misunderstood in her season. And she brought up a lot of things during her season that people are now talking about now about race and um, fandom and all of that. But she was one of the first people, actually the first person on Drag Race to actually say something about it. But she wasn't viewed well by the fans. And I wanted her to tell her story. In regards to, <laughs> in regards to Elite's favorite interview, they've all been great and wonderful. Have there been some queens who have canceled on me right before? Yeah. Have there been some queens that have not responded? Yeah. After something was booked? Yes. Uh, not going to name any names. I respect them all. I think... The first interview that I was disappointed with was Jasmine Masters. And I was very disappointed with that because we had agreed on, in all my emails and stuff, her wearing being in drag. And all of a sudden, she showed up to location not in drag. 
And I had to bite the bullet and I had to act like nothing was a problem, but I was affected on the inside. I was hurt. I don't know why I was so butthurt, but I took it so bad because I was just like, oh my gosh, this just kills the vision of what I wanted and what I wanted to, you know, expose and all of this. Like the people view queens in drag as a different standard as viewing them out of drag. And while I do delve into the individual and who this person is, I also like want people to be able to watch and see something they can relate to because at the end of the day, we love the drag aspect. So that was a shock and a surprise. She was great to interview. She's a wonderful person. I love her to death and I had a great time. I think that least favorite in that aspect, I'm just referring to her not showing up in drag and my expectations. I had expectations. I shouldn't have had expectations. Because if you have expectations, then you're going to fall flat. <laughs> so yeah, those are those two. As someone who's on the autism spectrum and to be in some way represented by yourself, how was it like to be diagnosed with Asperger's? How has it changed your life if it has? And has it made an impact to your personal lifestyle? Um, I was diagnosed with high-functioning ASD or autism spectrum disorder as it's known now. Uh, it used to be called Asperger's, but it's not Asperger's anymore. And autism has many different levels. You can be extremely high functioning or you can be extremely low functioning, just depending on where you stand on this spectrum. My boyfriend and I moved in together at the start of COVID and he started noticing things that were a little askew. It was very to myself. I was having tantrums every once in a while. I hate, hated anytime we'd have to go anywhere socially. I do not like being around people. He thought it was a little bizarre that I had no friends and that the only friends I really had were just like somebody I had been friends with years before or something like that. Like I just didn't have any home-based friends here in LA. There was a lot of things that he just found really askew and he found, hey, like there's some things that are off. And he had watched Inside Amy Schumer documentary on HBO and Amy Schumer's husband is on the spectrum. And he was like, I think that you guys have very, very, very similar traits. And I wouldn't be surprised if you are. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. Nope. No, 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 no. I was adamant against it. We went to Palm Springs and we were with a lot of his friends. I couldn't deal in the car ride. Driving two and a half, three hours, and there are people in the car, I couldn't deal with the music. I couldn't deal with anything. I had earplugs in. I put in my headphones. I was trying to really just be in the moment, but I couldn't. I couldn't get to this level. I had never been on a vacation with more than like one person, two people, or a family trip. So this was literally the most anxiety-ridden thing I've ever been on. And I remember that <laughs> I felt so unheard. Everything I wanted to do was not what other people wanted to do. I was more of the calm, stay in, do things like that. But nobody necessarily wanted to join those aspects. We all dressed up as housewives for well, like the housewives of New York City and Atlanta and all the things. And we dressed up as that for a dinner. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, I put in all this heart and effort and I'm wearing boobs and I have like, you know, hair and I did my makeup. And literally after five minutes, nobody gave a crap anymore and they all took off their stuff. 
And I was really just in this moment. I was like, you know, I want other people to be experiencing what I'm experiencing. I want people to have fun. I don't like that we people are taking things off. And so for some odd reason, I had heard somebody, one of my boyfriend's friends, say something the day earlier about going skinny dipping. And I thought in my head, hey, this is a great way to get everybody together. Let's all go skinny dipping. And I scream it out loud. I'm like, let's all go skinny dipping. And I end up running with my clothes off, jumping in the pool, and nobody joined me. Nobody wanted to skinny dip with me. Nobody wanted to do any of that. I read the room wrong. And I sat in that pool and I had a complete tantrum for about three hours. I couldn't understand. I I didn't understand what I was feeling. I felt so out of my body. I felt so displaced. I didn't understand social-wise. The next day we went home and I could not stop talking about it on the three-hour car ride home. I just could not stop it. I was like going on about how it wasn't fair that we do things that other people do, but not what I want to do. And I just went on this whole spree and my boyfriend had to deal with that the whole three hours. And after a while, once we got home after a week or so, he was like, you know, I do think that you may be on the spectrum. So I looked up, I researched, um, I found some doctors who diagnosed. It's very hard to diagnose people who are not like an adolescent because like adolescents are more prone to being diagnosed than adults and they have a whole different testing process and stuff. And I found a great psychiatrist and psychologist and I ended up getting tested over the course of a few weeks. They had to sit down and talk with me, talk with my boyfriend, talk with my family, read up on things, my medical history, and it took a very long time. I was asked so many questions and, you know, it it was difficult and it was hard. I was swaying the whole time in that interview and uh, the multiple interviews. And um, we left a third time that we were there, I believe, at the office. And I was told, you, Joseph, you know, are on the spectrum and you are high functioning because you can drive and you can talk and you can communicate, but you suffer from many of the other things that people in the spectrum suffer from. So I walked out and I cried. I felt like for once in my life, I knew who I wasn't as an individual. Oh my gosh, Mr. Cry. Um, it was hard. Hard as a human being to not feel accepted when you come out as gay um, and to not feel like you have a purpose in your life when it comes down to who you are as an individual because you have to act a certain way around parents or whatever. You can't be yourself. I had always thought for the longest time that something was wrong with me because I didn't like doing the things that other people like to do. I hate social situations. I would get so anxious and so driven. My tics, loud noises and misophonia and can't standing things above a certain level. OCD, like all of these things. Finally, there was like a name to it. And I thought over the past year that having a name to it would make me okay, I guess you would say. Um, and make me feel better. But I think that it actually has also like been really, really hard being 30 years old and being told that you've been on the spectrum your whole life and that's who you are as an individual. And it's kind of jaunting 
and scary to know. I don't know. It's scary. It just it was just interesting because everything that I knew in my life kind of felt like a lie. But at the exact same time, I finally felt that I was heard and I was understood, and there were other people I could relate to. I've never felt like I could relate to anybody in my life who has the same way of thinking and acknowledgement. And um, yeah, so it's been a great year of discovery. It's changed my life in ways of just being able to understand myself. I know now, like if I'm starting to feel overwhelmed and my sensories are going through the roof, which happens all the time, I can just step aside. I, for the first time last month, we had people, my we had my boyfriend's friends over for Thanksgiving. And I, for the first time, told them, hey guys, you guys can stay here and have fun in the living room. I am heading in because I can't be in this environment for that much longer. And I was there for like two hours and I popped into the bedroom and I watched TV and I was on my own and nobody viewed it as negative. And that was for the first time I felt so good. It felt like oh my gosh, finally people don't think I'm a bitch. Like I'm just able to be me and I felt comfortable being me. Oof, that, that's a lot. Um, and I will say that I think that I did take things personally. A lot of times people would be in the comment section of my videos saying I didn't have emotions or that I didn't understand jokes or that I didn't understand what the person was saying or that I wasn't listening. And that hurt. Like, I think that those comments were awful, like, to my psyche. But there are certain things that I'm now embracing, you know, like when people would call that out, it's like, yeah, well, you know what? You may think it's emotionless, or you may think that, you know, I'm not showing emotion or not sympathizing. But those are things that are very difficult for me to do as an individual. So um, I hope maybe me saying this will give you guys a heads up of what's going on. Uh, all right, let's take another break and let's get back more into the drag and all of that and my life because I'm Joseph Shepard and I'm about to be exposed. All right, we are back. And my next question is from Kyle Neves. He says, you've mentioned in the past having auditory sensitive uh, sensitivity when your partner eats too loud and things like that. Do you have difficulty entering vibrant and loud gay bars? And how do you ground yourself if so? As a fellow queer man with ASD, I'm very nervous trying to go to bars for fear of having stimulation overload in the middle of the dance floor while everyone else is dropping it to Babylon around me. Um, yeah, I will say that Going to gay bars when I first moved to LA, I probably went to two. I went out two times within my three years of living in LA when I first moved here. After my boyfriend, I tried to go more. I have things in my ears I now wear that bring down the decibel levels. Uh, it's called Flare by, I think it's like Flare Calm or Calm Audio. And basically, they have these little hole in them. It's kind of like an earplug, but it has a little hole. And it basically filters through the decibels. So like those high-pitched sounds and like a lot of loud talking and stuff, it just kind of goes down a little bit. And that has helped significantly. If we go out, normally that is rarely for me. My boyfriend loves going out. But if we do go out, I prefer it during the day when there's not that much traction or loud music. I prefer being able to sit outside. And once I find somewhere that I like, that's the go-to every single time if we do go out. My boyfriend hates that, but it's something that I am comfortable with and I know it's not going to be loud or crazy or what to expect and I'm not going to be, you know, overly stimulated. 
I would say that, you know, if you, what type of sounds get you? If the sounds get you like a loudspeaker, then maybe it's just going to a smaller gay bar. If it's like high pitch sounds, maybe, you know, you find where those aren't. If it's a lot of people, maybe you don't go where there's a lot of people. Like there's different variations I know of auditory uh, sensitivities and mine predominantly come from very, or not very, but very crowded spaces, I guess you would say, and people around. I cannot do that. I cannot deal with multiple conversations happening. Bars are very hard. Um, and loud music, um, pops, claps, tongues. Oh my gosh, I love drag queens, but if y'all have to pop your tongue or snap the fan, Joseph might be screaming. But yeah, so I would say like, just test yourself out in the water. Go when it's not as busy. Go at 5 p.m., 4 p.m., whatever. See what the vibe's like. Stay an hour. Stay 30 minutes. Just like slowly just inundate yourself and it will be learn where you can do. You're not always going to be able to do what you want or expect in that moment, but work yourself up to it. Um, Patrick says, what did you plan on being before you became a media personality? Did you always plan on going into journalism or did it just happen on a whim? Well, I had always wanted to go in journalism. As I said before, broadcast journalism is what I went to school for. Did I expect all this to take off in some shape, form, or way? No. I had a job last year in 2021 that did not go as planned. <laughs> and I had the opportunity to leave and I left that job and I said, I'm going to put my heart and my soul and everything into exposed and interviewing drag queens and also producing on the chop, producing on famous this week with Priyanka and producing uh hijinks with Jinx Monsoon. And I said, I'm just going to put it all into the Queens. I don't know if it's going to take off. I don't know if it's going to do well. I don't know if I'm going to be able to sustain myself, but I am going to do what I love. And I'm so glad I did. I have not looked back. I've never been happier in my career trajectory. I don't know what's going to happen next. I did record a song and I'm going to be putting out a song in Marchish. I'm very excited for that because every gay boy wants to record a song and do a music video. You know, at the end of the day, it's an experience. Whether you guys like it or not, have fun. Next question we have, have queens that you have interviewed ever spilled tea about what they know about a future season? Oh, yes, but loads of times. I've also talked to queens who have told me things and then retracted it afterwards because they didn't want it to be in the interview, uh, like the season 12 reading challenge that we never saw uh, because of somebody named Sherry Pie, but it did happen. Did you guys know that? But uh, oh, uh, Melissa said, "Would you consider writing a book? You seem so wise beyond years that I think your hosting and interview skills would translate to written word." Melissa, I would love to eventually one day. I think it's a little hard for me to sit down and write about my life, but I have written children's books. Um, so if any of you guys know of any publishers, um, hit me up because I do have some really good children's books that I have written. If you could interview one person living or dead, who would it be and why? Bonus question, what would you want to ask them? I would love to have a sit-down interview with Britney Spears. I think I would be the perfect person to do it. I am not that well-known, but I know all about Britney Spears, and I think Britney Spears, when she does give her interview, needs to give it to somebody who actually cared about her the whole time. Britney Spears was my obsession. She still is my obsession. I literally have so much memorabilia. I, I love her as a human being and as a person. If somebody had passed, I would probably say Divine. I would love to chat with Divine. Divine was 
a phenomenal queen and she had such a story to tell and I would love to be able just to hear like can you imagine the heyday before RuPaul this bitch was killing it in her John Waters films like uh I would love to know do you get shy when doing interviews are you sometimes worried you'll get too personal uh yeah I do get shy during interviews depending on who the person is I wouldn't say I'm too worried about getting too personal. I would say that at the very first of my interviews, if you notice, like Willem and Alaska and Pearl and stuff, I tried to give the queens more room to speak because I felt like a lot of times interviews of queens from other sources, it was always the entertainment value, the quick hitting questions. The other interviewer always interviewers always coming in with um, multiple things about themselves. And I just really wanted the queens to stand alone. So that's how I kind of first started. And then over time, I've, you know, interjected a little bit more and gave more of myself in there. But I just want the stories told of these queens. I don't want me to be the biggest personality in the room. I want them to be. And I want them to feel comfortable about just telling me their stories. When are you dropping the OnlyFans? <laughs> Probably never. I don't think that I would ever do that. I have extreme body dysmorphia, as a lot of us in this community do. I also think that sex to me is a very intimate act that I love to have. And I think doing it as a job or doing it full time or setting up a camera and doing work would probably kill the experience for me. Um, but I am subscribed to a lot of OnlyFans people. I love my OnlyFans content, it's the new Tumblr to me. So always support your sex workers and always throw some coin. However, if I'm paying for your OnlyFans and you only got 10 second video clips up there, you need to preface that. Uh-uh. If I wanted previews, then I would go to Twitter. What do you do when you aren't working? Um, when I'm not working, I love sleeping. I love staying on my own. I just built a Lego set. I'm about to build Home Alone Lego set. I'm very to myself. Being on the spectrum, it's very hard for myself to go into social situations without getting overwhelmed or sensory overload. It's just something that it's never interested in me. It's something that I don't necessarily like doing all the time. So I would say just like uh, staying to myself, staying on my own. I like working out. I like editing videos. And I'd been working on this song recently and I'm very excited. I'm trying to plan all of that around. Also, guys, I'm just going to say this now. I will be having a booth at DragCon. I am very excited about that. And let's just say that I'm going all out for this. It's going to be more of an interview spot. Just giving a little tip. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm very excited for you guys to see this um, because you will. And I'll give you more information when it comes down the pipeline. But I'm working on that as well. What queens have you flirted with? And have you ever been on date with any of them? Um, Priyanka. Actually, no, I've never been on a date with any queen. And another question was, have you fucked a queen? No, I have not. <laughs> I try to keep um, or I do always keep business and pleasure separate. I have a boyfriend, so... I wouldn't do that, but I also wouldn't mess around with anything in my job because I do take this job very seriously, even though it's fun and goofy and people do flirt and the queens do flirt. Like, I do love taking this seriously. What is your sign? I'm a Pisces and Aries cusp. I was born on March 20th, so it's the last day of Pisces and then technically like the first day of Aries, so I'm a little fucked up all over. What house did you film Katia in? Katia was filmed in Coach Mike Bear's house. Coach Mike Bear is a B-A-Y-E-R. He is a um, 
a great motivational speaker. He ended up being, I believe, Demi Lovato's sobriety coach and stuff. He's a life coach for a lot of people. But that was his house. Katya hated all of the artwork in that house. Literally, she hated it all. I did too. The Funniest Queen. Oh my gosh. Funniest Queen? I probably would say Anubis. Anubis was cracking me up. Were you always a briefs guy or did you have the boxer brief period in high school? Um, I'm still a boxer brief guy. I do not really like briefs. I only wear them for shoots predominantly or when my boxer briefs go down and the only underwear I have is briefs. When did you and your boyfriend meet? We met three years ago off of Grinder. No, <laughs> we didn't do anything suspicious the first date. We did go on a date for, I believe we went on three dates and then worked our way into a relationship. Uh, Lee Dawson, you asked your favorite, my favorite exposed, um, favorite exposed, probably, like I said before, it was Willem, uh, Alaska, Kati is great. Uh, so many, I, I've enjoyed them all. Do you have a crush on Carmen Ferrala? Who doesn't have a crush on Carmen Ferrala? Literally, that was one of the heights of my favorite interviews. You know what, Lee Dawson? Carmen Ferrala is my favorite interview because she knew how I don't know. She, she made me so happy. That girl is so talented. I'm so excited she's coming to DragCon. I'm so excited to meet her in person. I put a mother, mama, and I put a lot into that interview. And I just wanted others to see how great the international franchises were. And I hope that I can continue to do that. I'm looking to do it for Italia. I'm looking to do it for more Hispania queens. And uh, yeah, mustache routine. <laughs> My mustache routine is the following. I shave my beard occasionally and I trim my mustache probably once every five days. And that's it. I hate shaving it off. It takes forever to grow back and I look like a child. Mm -mm -mm. Do I suck toes? I have never sucked a toe, actually. Alona Verley, what was your first drag show? Oh, wow. Um, my first drag show was in Atlanta. Um, it was at a place called Burkhart's, and I believe it was Nicole Page Brooks. I believe. What's a song you can sing front and back? Oh, my gosh. Song I can sing front and back. Baby One More Time. Oops, I did it again. Make Me by Britney. Um, Toxic by Britney. Anything by Britney Spears. I can sing front and back. What's your type sexually and romantically? Make me laugh, make me smile, understand me as a human being. Any teachers that stood out to you, both good and bad? My theater teacher in high school, Miss Shafan Cobb Mack, was my absolute favorite teacher in the world. I've never had so much admiration for somebody. I've never had so much respect for somebody. Somebody's never pushed me the way that that lady did. I love her. I thank her so much for everything she did and having me find a love for the arts, having me love myself for who I am. She was incredible. Any teachers that stood out to me, bad. This lady named Miss Lorraine Cotton, I will gladly say her name nine million times, Lorraine Cotton. She was a little girl, not really a little girl. She was a little woman. Um, she had red hair. She was mean. Oh my gosh, she despised me. I have no idea why. Basically, we had a rivalry. You either liked one theater teacher in high school, you liked one or the other. And I liked Miss Mack. She did not like that I liked Miss Mack. She screwed me over quite a bit. She screwed me out of scholarships. She didn't tell me when deadlines were. She didn't tell me when there were scholarships. She sent everybody else's scholarships for college in. She didn't send mine in. I was doing a community theater production of Grease. I was Knicky in it. And we did Grease at my high school. And I had auditioned. 
To which she told me, well, you had a big role in the community theater production, so you don't get a big role in this one because we need to make it fair for everybody else. Makes no sense, though, because it was a community theater production. It was not a high school production, and we hadn't done it before. She was really the epitome of hateful, the epitome of really just trying to, like, screw a kid over. And my senior year, I ran for thespian president. She was pulling out the names of <laughs> of who was who the votes were for. And it's between myself and this girl named Holly. She's pulling out these things, and she was like, and the senior lesbian president is Joseph Shepard. And the look of dismay on her face. Oh, oh, I loved it so much. Oof. Carmen says, I heard you have a super cool friend named Carmen. Is that true? Yes, it is true. I love Carmen. I officiated Carmen's wedding. Carmen is an amazing actress, singer, talented beyond belief. I love her to death. I hate that she's in Atlanta because I would love to just see her all the time. Had so many good nights together. I love her. And guys, that's the end of my crazy life, I guess. Uh, my expose that I'm doing. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys for hearing me out. Hopefully, you know, you learned some things that you didn't know. I just want to say thank you guys again. Thank you all so much for an amazing 2021. While it may have been awful in a lot of ways because of pandemic, I really hope that you guys at least found a little bit of an out and being able to watch interviews with some of your favorite girls. Please send me emails. You can send me emails to joseph at josephashepherd.com. That's joseph at j-o-s-e-p-h-a-s-h-e-p-h-e-r-d.com. Feel free to write in. Tell me if you want some queens interviewed. Uh, feel free to show love in the podcast little thing. Click a little five stars. Give me a rating. Subscribe. Do all of that. Head over to my YouTube. Um, I love you guys so much. I have so many things planned for next year. Like I said, I have a song coming out. I have a music video coming out. And I will be doing something crazy at DragCon. So thank you all so much for listening. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, and Happy New Year. I'll chat with you in 2022 to find out who gets the job. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Who gets exposed? Uh, bye, guys. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Exposed Dragged Out, brought to you by The Dip. I'm Joseph Shepard, your host. You can follow me on all things social at Joseph A. Shepard. That's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. You can also go to thedip.com slash RuPaul's Drag Race. The Dip with two P's dot com. That's the dip with two P's.com. Use promo code EXPOSE for 50% off your membership. And be sure to check out other podcasts from the dip, including Hot Off the Mess with Samantha Bush, the daily pop culture podcast, Pop Chaser, TV History Podcast, TV Watch Repeat, Real Housewives Podcast, The Slut Pick Podcast, and also I Am the Cute One, a Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen podcast. Until next time, I'm Joseph Shepard. <laughs>